Welcome to Crafty Sourcer. If you're looking for a raw, unfiltered podcast on all things sourcing in APAC, you've come to the right place. Grab a coffee or wine and join your host and other guests as we dive deep into the complex and ever-evolving world of sourcing, keeping you informed on insights, tools, and even at times, a healthy sourcing debate or two. Now, here's your host, Denise Pereira from Kaleidosource. Settle in and let's get crafty. Hey everyone, we are back with another episode of The Crafty Saucer. Now today our guest is a talent lead who is passionate about talent branding, the community in itself, remote work specifically, and apparently he also likes loud keyboards. So let's get into it and let's get crafty. Liam Porter, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you, here. Liam, you and I have been connected for a while. We've been chatting here and there. But for those who don't know who is Liam, could you please give us a quick introduction? Yeah, sure. So five years-ish in recruitment, uh, kind of split between agency and internal. Uh, I'm based in Newcastle, which two and a half-ish hours north of Sydney for people that don't know. Internally, I've worked at Atlassian, Mr. Yum, um, kind of done my own consulting thing for a little bit. Uh, in agency, I worked in tech uh, recruitment agencies fairly consistently. Um, so tech is kind of where I specialize. I guess I'm kind of senior lead level, <laughs> but, you know, titles are always a bit malleable. At the moment, uh, just kind of taking a break. It's been a weird year for a lot of recruiters, as uh, I'm sure many of the listeners can appreciate. So just kind of taking stock and really just getting ready to, to gear up into 2024, get amongst it. So as Liam said, he is in the market. So for anyone that's listening and hiring, please get in touch with Liam as well. Now, Liam, you mentioned... You've been a tech recruiter, you've done consulting agency, and you've also worked for some well-known companies like you mentioned Atlassian and Mr. Yum. So you've seen different facets to recruitment and sourcing, and you can obviously tell that there are some distinct differences operationally. Hmm. What is the value you've seen sourcing can bring to any organization or specifically any of the companies that you've worked in? Sure. Uh, I think... Sourcing inherently, just as a kind of a, a definition, I kind of think of sourcing as everything from the candidate first recognizes the company. So, you know, they hear the name at last for the first time when they're in high school or university or whatever. They go, oh, that company seems pretty interesting. Everything that happens between them and them actually taking the interview, I think that's sourcing, which might be a little broad depending on <laughs> what you think. But fundamentally, it's any sort of input that you're that you're making to try and get the candidate excited, right? I think the value of sourcing is difficult to convey to businesses, which is, you know, it's why we're kind of in this down market and why TA teams are getting cut, that sort of thing. I think fundamentally, if you align it to almost like a marketing function where it's, you know, we're operating rain, hail or shine to ensure that when the time comes, we're good to go. You know, you don't cut a marketing team just because you're mid-cycle for a product. And I think the same concept aligns to TA. You might not be hiring super aggressively at the moment, but your TA team, or more specifically your sourcing team, they're still, they're still making inputs to ensure that when the hiring does pick up or when critical roles do become available, you've got the best people good to go. You, you're ready to run immediately. You don't need to run a protracted process. You don't have to spend six months looking for the right person. You just, you've got it all sorted. I, I think. 
sourcing as well a lot of a lot of businesses see it as kind of a slice in time thing so sources operate just based on who's available in the market that day so whoever applies to the job ad whoever whoever reaches out via email whatever and i don't really agree with that i think great sources it's more about the long tail nature of a relationship and it's more about you know you might interact with people three years down the line they might come up you know I spoke with you during COVID. It was a weird time. There wasn't any jobs available, but I've, I've admired from afar. Are there any jobs available? What can we do? And those, you know, that sort of, that sort of conversation is really where sourcing comes into its own. It's, it's making the right inputs and speaking to the right people and positioning yourself kind of in the right way. So when the time does come, you, you're good to go. I like what you just mentioned about sourcing, and I completely agree. And this is my personal take around sourcing is that you're right. Sourcing is not just about the now. It's about the next three months, six months, 12 months that ties into your workforce planning. And I think the one good thing about sourcing and TA in general is that we don't only have to be creative, but we also have to wear multiple hats. So your employer branding, recruitment, marketing, you know, we have to dabble into areas that we've probably never had to specialize in at some stage. And I always say sourcing specifically is a long-term game for long-term gain. And even when I'm talking to some of my customers that I work with, and I always say to them, look, if you're only looking to bring me on board, if you just want to hire someone and you want to hire someone tomorrow, then I'm probably not going to be the right person because sourcing is a lot more than that in the back end. So thanks for sharing your thoughts on that, Liam. We are obviously here to talk a lot more about remote working. You're definitely one of the few people that I personally know who speaks very passionately about it. I've seen it in our Slack groups and whenever you and I have spoken. We've seen more advantages than disadvantages of remote working. And in 2023, you know, hybrid seems to be the way to go. I was reading some stats earlier that 85% of companies in the APAC region actively are promoting and embracing the hybrid model. I'm pretty sure it's here to stay. In fact, you know, data does suggest that remote workers are happier, they're more loyal, and not to mention it's also better for the environment. With you being a massive advocate for remote working, why is remote working still as important as it was during COVID? I guess before kind of getting to the nuts and bolts of it, hybrid working, I think hybrid working is bullshit, to be honest. It's fundamentally a compromise that no one wins in. The, the only reason remote working works, or I guess that all of the benefits of remote working are tied to being fully remote. So like you mentioned, better fit in the environment, you know, no commute, better flexibility to deal with family and, you know, life stuff that happens. If you're having to commute into Sydney City three days a week just to do the same thing, but pay for parking and travel and whatever, like there's no benefit and much, you know, I guess on the on the flip side of that, uh, if you've decided that on-site work is is the work mode, that's fine. Um, at least you've kind of committed to that mode and, and people that join know what they're in for. Hybrid working to me seems like this kind of, it seems like we're kicking the can down the road culturally. Businesses, they were fully remote during COVID. A lot of workers realized that fully remote was for them. It, it was a quality of life improvement. It was a flexibility improvement, whatever. And hybrid working is this weird gray area where we're slowly whittling down and we're slowly getting further towards on-prem, but aren't explicitly saying we're back to on-prem. So yeah, a lot of people are adopting hybrid working. I wish businesses were more decisive and just ripped the bandaid off and said they were going to back, going back to on-site, but it is what it is. Why is it still as important as it was during COVID? I think 
fundamentally, the, the return to office stuff has put people in weird positions. So like, like I said, I'm from Newcastle. During 2020, I was in agency recruitment for a tech recruitment agency. And we saw a massive influx of talent into the Newcastle region and the Hunter region in general. Um, a lot of people moving from Sydney that didn't want to pay $4 million for a shoebox terrace, right? A lot more affordable. Frankly, you know, it's nicer up here. There's a bit more space. You're not having to kind of interact with as many people if that's not what you want to do. And it was a really good thing for, for the region. We historically experienced a brain drain uh, of people from Newcastle to Sydney. So to see that reverse was really, really encouraging, really, really cool. Those same people who moved three years ago are now in a position where they're probably going to have to move back for work just based on the quantity of remote roles available. And that's that's an uncomfortable position to put people in. And I think the, the cultural shift, or I guess the, the walking back of remote work that's happened, especially in the last kind of 12 to 18 months, it's it's putting a lot of knowledge workers in the position where they're having to choose between quality of life and, I guess, quality of career, for lack of a better term. I don't think that's right. I think you can totally have both. Uh, it's just the organizations have to put in a lot more work to be able to uh, to be able to get that to happen. I, remote working is not for everyone, and, and I get that, but that power of choice is the kind of, I, I think that's the important piece. Power of choice is being removed from a lot of people. And frankly, it's being removed on the whim of decision makers who end up working away from the office most of the time anyway. So it's one of those things where the impact maybe isn't being fully seen by the people making that decision. Do you think it's like a bit of a power trip here? When, if you remember when COVID hit, companies were throwing massive amounts of money. You can work from anywhere, you know, paying up to 50K more than what someone should be getting do you think that companies should incentivize people to be more hybrid? Because you're right, it should be a choice. I personally prefer remote working. I don't mind being hybrid, but I don't want it to be enforced on me either. And that's why I like doing my own thing at the same time. But do you think people need to be incentivized to some extent? Because the cost of living has gone up. Yeah, I don't necessarily think it should be an incentive. I just don't think that it should be used as a stick, if that makes sense. I think if you look at if you look at what's happening with a pessimistic lens, you, you could look at what's happening as a way of companies doing redundancies or, or laying people off without explicitly doing so. If someone has to make the decision between uprooting their family and just going and getting a different job, they're probably going to end up doing the latter. Should people be incentivized to come to the office? I don't think they should. I think I think fundamentally we're dealing with adults. Adults know how to work uh, in the best manner for them, generally speaking, empower people, give them the choice. Uh, if people want to come to the office, make sure that there's things for them to do in the office that warrant them to come in. Don't just put them in front of a desk and make them sit on Zoom calls because that's that doesn't make sense. It doesn't really make the best use of that work mode. And I guess on on kind of the flip on the flip side there, for remote first organisations, when they do meet uh, in person, make it intentional build out an itinerary, give them things to do, you know, make the most of that time. Because fundamentally, remote working doesn't mean that you never see people in person. You know, it's just a lot less often. So um, my time at Atlassian, we met every quarter in person. So people got flown around, all that sort of thing. And we had an itinerary of events. We'd have training. And that, you know, three-day period, I bonded with my colleagues so much more than I would have if I was just sitting next to them in the office. Because we had the free time available to to hang out and you know properly learn who one another is, we had the ability to 
get training, understand best practice, all of that sort of stuff. And because we use that time so much more effectively than we otherwise would have, we got so much more value out of it. And because people came ready to go, like came ready to learn about one another, came ready to socialize, the dynamic was just so positive and like it was so invigorating. Look, it, it doesn't have to be just remote and you never hang out or whatever. I think kind of the, the broad messaging that I want to provide here is that remote working requires really intentional action. And that's why it's not worked out for a lot of organizations. I've worked at companies where that action has been invested in super aggressively and I've seen the benefits of it. It's a big move, but it's, yeah, the benefits are there. I think also now it's, it, it's always been a trust thing to a certain extent as well. And, you know, it's, it's sad that it took a whole bloody pandemic to happen for us to even start thinking about remote working. Now that we moved out of it, we're kind of going back into somewhat of bad habits of companies kind of calling the shots for that. And I understand it. But again, you're right. People need to have the choice to be like, hey, if I don't want to be around my screaming kids today, I'm going to go into the office. But again, it has to be intentional. Don't just go do something for the sake of doing something. I was reading a study. So Upwork study predicts that 22% of all workers will be remote by 2025. So that's huge. Now, what are some strategies that you've used to source candidates remotely and i'm sure there have been challenges there have been highs there have been lows are you happy to share some of those with us Uh, i think and and sorry for the sweeping generalization that i'm about to throw out um but uh, remote first workers especially in tech where I, i kind of tend to play they're less likely to put themselves out there and i think this is definitely a generalization but Someone who doesn't want to go to an office probably likely to be an introvert. An introvert's less likely to have a LinkedIn presence, less likely to kind of put themselves out there. Remote sourcing, uh, I think it's a lot about depth rather than breadth. Um, You've got to dig deeper than everyone else because frankly, it's not that hard to post a job on LinkedIn. It's not hard to bulk message a bunch of people. Remote work at the moment, it's the exception, not the rule. So you have kind of a, you have the quantity of candidates available. There's a lot of people looking for remote jobs. But if you can dive deeper, you can find the people who aren't explicitly applying. And if you put the work in to position yourself as a remote first business and someone that actually cares about the, I guess, the flexibility and the the kind of tenants associated with it, you gain access to a lot of talent that otherwise wouldn't really be available to you. As far as, I guess, sourcing strategies, look, remote first boards have their place. So like Remote OK, Himalayas, that sort of thing. They're fine. You're not going to get the quantity of candidates, but you're going to get candidates that do actually care about remote work. So that has its place. Online career events, the kind of Slack Discord community stuff, that community building element, that, that's all still totally valid. And frankly, strategically, it's not that different to what you would do for in-person hiring. It's just the usual things that we would do around like career expo days, meetups, whatever, you're just shifting them onto the online medium. The participation's still there. The, the usual things are still available. You're just doing it in front of a computer. As far as challenges, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, look, you don't have the kind of usual crutches to lean on. I think that's that's the most uncomfortable thing for a lot of people when it comes to sourcing remotely. You know, if you're a recruiter that's typically just operated in the Sydney market, you know which companies are pretty safe to hire from. You know which universities are the good unis and what unis are the not good unis because that's still apparently a thing. How do you do that if you're sourcing in Thailand? How do you do that if you're sourcing in Korea? Like you, you don't know which university in Seoul is the good one. You don't know which one sucks. You don't know which companies are the ones that are worth pulling from. 
so you you lose the guardrails, or you lose the, I guess, <laughs> frankly, the the biases that you you tend to lean on as a recruiter. Time zones always ugly to deal with. I'm a big believer in hiring within the time zone and within teams. So if you know if you're building an engineering team that's going to predominantly be based in Sydney. Just hire two or three hours either side of that band. If you've got a team that might be West Coast US, you might be able to hire people in New Zealand. You might be able to hire people East Coast US, South America, whatever. There's also the, I guess, the challenge of data privacy and security in general. You know, it is as much as I talk about we're adults and you can be trusted and whatever. If things go wrong, they can go really wrong remotely. And if you don't have the the intentional preparation to minimize or mitigate risk. My partner's going to love this. She's like a risk and compliance advisor. So this is, I'm, I've clearly picked something up from her. <laughs> Look, if, if, you don't, uh, if you don't prepare and ensure that your, your data is secure, you don't ensure that they aren't going to exfil all of your commercially sensitive stuff, it, it can be scary. So it requires intentional investment in security, compliance, risk, all of those functions, which fundamentally, they're not, they're not sexy functions of a business. No one wants to throw money into security until they've been hacked. So it, it requires, again, a bit of a mindset shift there. Obviously, hiring cross-border, the, the legal intricacies of having hiring in different countries, most of that's mitigated by deal or remote or whoever you want to use nowadays. But uh, when you're first starting up, it can be a bit scary. But look, the, the benefits are there, right? Uh, fundamentally, bigger talent pool, more diverse talent pool as well. Uh, there are a lot of people who you know, neurodiverse. They might uh, come from areas of the world that realistically you're not going to be able to find people in Australia. And EVP, look, it's, it's the biggest cheat code possible for EVP. If you could tell someone 20 years ago that they could work as a knowledge worker, they, could, they didn't have to commute into a city, they could live in parks or whatever. Like they, could, they could live as inland as they wanted, just chuck a Starlink satellite up and away you go, sell your car, live where you want, wake up later, go to bed later, like, do what you want. You're an adult. We trust you to do what you uh, need to do to get the job done. It just sets the tone of an employment relationship so much more positively than it otherwise would. And I, I think people have kind of forgotten that. The, the difference in tonality and the, I guess the, the positivity associated with hiring people remotely, you can tell how excited they are, not just because of the opportunity, but because of what it's going to do for the rest of their life, not just work. I like the point you made about the data and privacy because it reminds me of when I joined Zendesk. So Zendesk was remote way before COVID ever hit. So everybody was working asynchronously. They were set up. They were set up for everything. The infrastructure, everything was set up. It was set up really well. And then it reminds me of when I was working at ANZ. So being a big four bank, never had to deal with this. And the minute the pandemic happened, we were all pretty much sent home. And I think it took a couple of days before the infrastructure was set up in a way that was viable, that was protected. So again, you know, you're right. Till something major doesn't happen, you don't think of all the possibilities of what could go wrong. You do think of it in a general way, but you don't sometimes think of it. You'd, nobody thought a pandemic was going to happen in 2019, 2020, right? Hmm. Even earlier this year, I remember when I was talking to candidates, I think there might have been maybe one candidate that had asked, hey, is there an option for us to go into the office? This candidate was based in Sydney. Their role was in Melbourne, so it was fully remote. And they decided to take up a role in Sydney only because it gave them the option to go into the office to break up their week. 
you're right about that. You know, it's it's here to stay. There is there are a lot of benefits, but if it's done well, it can still be a win-win. It doesn't have to feel like it's a tug of war between the company, the candidate, or the employee at the same time. And when this goes live, please ask your partner to listen to it because uh, she'll feel really proud about the fact that you actually quoted her and mentioned, and you have been listening to what she's been saying. Last question from me, Liam. Now, again, I love talking about sourcing. And from a sourcing standpoint, have you found, you mentioned Deal, you mentioned a couple of others, but have you found any niche platforms or tools that have been effective for you to source and recruit remote talent? Yeah, definitely. I mentioned before, Remote OK in Himalaya is the kind of remote job board stuff. I helped build a remote job board back in the day when I was, uh, when I was in agency. It didn't work out because we were building a remote first job site, but we were going into an office every day. Like fundamentally, the, the mindset wasn't there. We weren't, you know, at, at the time, the, the team that were building it, we weren't necessarily passionate about remote. It was just COVID had happened and, you know, we were trying to capitalize on hype. We were trying to pivot a little bit. But the, the, the boards that did kind of stay the course and the boards that did properly invest in it, they, they totally have their place. They're, they're super valuable. You're not going to get the quantity. But frankly, the quality is going to be a lot better. And the people that are sourcing, uh, the people that are searching on those boards are going to be so much more invested in remote work. It's kind of a lifestyle choice. That said, remote working is the, very much in the minority at the moment. If you just chuck a remote job on LinkedIn, you're going to get like five times the applications than you would if it was on-prem. So honestly, the remote work boards, they're a luxury. But frankly, just chuck a job out up and you'll probably be okay. Online communities kind of... Online group, uh, online communities of practice, uh, I think, are so so underappreciated from a sourcing perspective. Yeah, we look at the the on-prem examples of meetups and those sorts of things. You know, you've got a million different recruitment meetups, you've got a million different kind of software engineering meetups, security meetups, startup meetups, whatever. And, and they obviously have their place, and there's a certain value in being able to to hang out in person, grab a beer or whatever. But that still happens online. It's not like that disappeared. And frankly, the online community of practice stuff has been around for ages. You know, I'm, I'm a gamer and I kind of grew up uh, in, in the world of IRC channels and TeamSpeak and all these sorts of things where you know, you, it was only kind of the hardcore people that were into it. So it, it kind of got a bad rap. But, but nowadays you've got, you know, FewSource is a, an online dev community with something like, you know, it's got like 4,000 people in it. The Rand's Leadership Slack, which is more around kind of management and leadership as a, I guess, as a skill set, that's got 30,000 people in it. And, and these are people that it's not just, you know, any old Tom, Dick and Harry. We've got people that are directors of engineering at Apple and Netflix being very active contributors within these communities. So being able to glean knowledge from those people is in and of itself super valuable, but being able to source in those communities where they obviously care enough to join a community of practice and to, to put their, you know, to put themselves out there. Yeah, you're not seeing a bit of meetup necessarily, but that's a meetup in and of itself. It's just a different format. I think sources, recruiters, a lot of people listening to this will have been a part of Talent Acquisition Down Under and kind of seen the value that comes from that community and seeing how valuable it is to be able to bounce stuff off people. It's the same principle. It's, it's, not, like, it's not like TADU exists in a vacuum. Those communities exist for so many different things, and there's so many more people than you could ever expect to see in them. I've learned so much from those communities. They, whenever I have difficulty sourcing a particular role, whenever I'm not getting candidates in, 
that's my first port of call. I'll go to those communities and say, here's this job I've got. I'm not getting any traction. I think I'm hitting the mark, but obviously something's missing. For you as a candidate, what do you need for this role to make sense? It saved my ass so many times. It's not even funny. Frankly, I should be paying out commission to them. But anyway, and I guess the the kind of AI-based sourcing tools as well. The one I'm most familiar with is Seekout, just because we use that at Atlassian. Um, so the ones that pull from Google, from GitHub, all of those sorts of different platforms, not just LinkedIn or Seek, I think they get a bit of a bad rap just because it's it's harder to engage with the candidate through them. Seekout, for example, I know you you find the profile, but you then kind of get redirected to LinkedIn Recruiter to then have to message them. And it's, it's a bit ugly. It's a bit clunky. The reality is it unearths talent that you would never have found otherwise unless you really, really really put in the work on GitHub Boolean searching, but who has the time? It does so much of the heavy lifting for you. It segments the market super well. It segments based on underrepresented groups as well. So if you have DEI targets, those sorts of things, absolute cheat code. I think that those sorts of platforms are pretty underutilized. And I think recruiters don't appreciate them because it's just easier to use LinkedIn Recruiter. Give them a crack and like actually use it as your primary sourcing methodology for a couple of weeks and you'll be surprised. You mentioned you're a gamer. Is that the reason why you like loud keyboards or? Uh, look, I like loud keyboards because <laughs> I don't want to break my MacBook with my <laughs> big club hands. <laughs> um, no, it, it's just, it's nice. Like it's, it's tactile, right? You know, if, if you, I guess you can equate it to like, if you've got a really satisfying car door that you slam and like, it just, it just hits, right? Like it's the same thing, but however many times a minute that you're typing, it just and- feels good. That makes me want to go and slam my guard a couple of times and see what that yeah. feels like. <laughs> you, if you've got like a really solidly built car and you slam the door, like it, it just feels good. It's a, it's very much that principle, but yeah, less destructive. We'll see. I think one of the other things you mentioned, like you were talking about Seekar, I've been a, a heavy user of Hire Easy and their similar platforms, like they're competitors of mm. one another. And one thing I do remember was the DNI filters on high easy and using it was good, but it never gave us the results only because I feel like because it's an American based platform. So the data that the aggregated data that was on there or that was coming through was more related to like other geographies, not so mm. much, but over here we still have an opportunity to improve on that because there are associations. When you look at it from a diversity lens, you know, there's Asian associations, there's marginal communities, there's so many different other ways that we can we can tap into it. Liam, we've come to time. So thank you so much for coming on as a guest uh, for Crafty Source and obviously sharing a lot of your insights around a topic that should be equally important as other topics as well. And I hope that, you know, more and more companies at some stage do give us some sort of control around, hey, let us pick and choose what works for us, you know. And I think people are also going to be a lot more loyal to the cause in, in that aspect as well. So Liam, thank you so much. And everybody stay crafty. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. And we'll be back next week with another exciting episode. If you found this valuable, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. That helps others find the show and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, happy sourcing and stay crafty. Until next time.